Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, January the 23rd, 2024. Headlines, as always, it seems over the last few months, are dominated by war, particularly the war in the Middle East. Uh, According to the New York Times, uh, the crisis, the war is widening. Uh, 24 Israeli soldiers are killed. The pressure is growing on Netanyahu, although he seems to be a man who enjoys pressure or certainly thrives under it. Uh, according to the Washington Post, uh, there's no long-term strategy for this war, at least on the part of Israel. Meanwhile, according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, the war is spreading. There is a war in all but name uh, at the Israel-Lebanon border. Meanwhile, there may indeed be not just a war outside Israel, but a war internally. Um, my guest today, uh, Bernard Avishai, is one of the world's leading scholars on Israel. And he has a very interesting and important, I think, cover story in Harper's Magazine. Uh, this month on Israel's war within on the ruinous history of religious Zionism. Uh, Bernard Avishai is joining us from Jerusalem, where he divides his time. Uh, Bernard, how does this war within, is it the same kind of war uh, as the war without? Is, is what's happening within Israel similar? It, does the word war uh, apply equally to the war in Gaza, the war on the Lebanon border, the war within? Um, well, of course not. Uh, the war that the article adverts to is a culture war that's been going on really since 1967 between um, people with um, cosmopolitan instincts, people who more or less see themselves as um, uh, you know, the defenders of a liberal society and uh, theocrats who then became active settlers in the West Bank and uh, have not only um, in the back of their minds the idea that they want to annex Palestinian territory and create a greater Israel but that they want to annex the government as well and create a theocracy. Um, and the, the war has been basically uh, coming to a head um, in the last year before the war in Gaza began. Uh, the, war, the culture war came to a head over the judiciary. And the point I tried to make in the article is that um, while it feels in the West like Netanyahu has been trying to change the country significantly, um, in fact, what he's trying to do is keep things as they are. I mean, because for all kinds of reasons I go into in the article, um, Israel's um, constitutional system has really privileged and favored the religious Zionists, the, the Messianists that I've been referring to. Um, and the judiciary has really been trying to change it. One of, you know, Netanyahu is always accused 
the judiciary of activism, but in a way he, he meant it in precisely the way that uh, Southern senators during the mm. civil rights movement uh, accused uh, civil rights leaders of activism because what they were trying to do, the, 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 what, what, the, what the court was trying to do uh, and the civil rights leaders were trying to do was um, reform to a constitutional system that would um, create a much more liberal conception of Israeli citizenship, of citizenship. And uh, the senators who were speaking about activism were basically trying to keep things as they were. They were, they were trying to defend things that no democracy ever should have tolerated in the first place. So yeah, I, I, I found that really interesting in your piece, the, the Harper's piece. Um, I actually just came back from Mississippi at the weekend, and the comparison with the South is, is particularly interesting. You use this word war, maybe the editors came up with the title Israel's War Within. Isn't it just politics? There are two groups of people, it's often the case in the United States and in, in, in Israel, just who disagree about the nature of the state, uh, the identity of the state. Is this unusual, this so-called war within? No, I wouldn't say it's unusual, but it is um, pretty sharp in the Israeli case. And because of the peculiar ways in which the populations are concentrated, with the theocrats and the settlers all concentrated around Jerusalem and the settlements, and with the um, more cosmopolitan, what I call global Israelis, as opposed to advocates of greater Israel, the advocates of global Israel, um, all concentrated on the coast, uh, Tel Aviv and so on, um, the populations are becoming increasingly um, alienated from one another, which the war with Gaza has papered over for a while, but may explode all over again uh, when the question comes what do we do to end this war? Because um, the people who I tend to think of as global Israel are uh, very much interested in pursuing um, the, at least the, the vision that America has uh, proposed, um, a vision of Israel being integrated into the Middle East, accepting um, and really um, uh, celebrating uh, recognition by Saudi Arabia and and being taken into the region as a partner of the moderate Sunni states and paying the price, the price, as it were, that they feel would have to be paid is a peace process towards a Palestinian state. Whereas the advocates for global, for greater Israel, who are all focused in Jerusalem and the settlements, find that prospect utterly anathema. They, How they, different uh, is all this? Uh, you've been writing about this for a while. You wrote um, The Tragedy of, of Zionism, one, uh, one book in 1985, and then uh, another one in 2002. So you've been following this story for a while. How different is what's happening now from what happened 30 years ago? You begin with uh, your memories of standing outside a demonstration 
against Kissinger and the religious Jews yeah. chanting Jew boy at Kissinger for his commitment or willingness to make peace. How different is it now? Is it just the the climax of the tragedy? Tragedies always seem to climax and then they never seem to do and they just go on and on. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think to a large extent, we're seeing the culmination of something that's been building and that I tried to put my finger on back in 1985. The difference is that the religious Zionist world has become far more powerful than it was back then. Um, at the time, you know, the number of settlers in the West Bank, even in 1985, was perhaps uh, 50,000. When I first wrote about Kissinger coming to uh, to Israel to try to uh, jumpstart a peace process back in uh, 1975, there were maybe 4,000 uh, settlers altogether in the West Bank. By the end of the Reagan administration, there were 100,000. So, you know, little by little, this thing has been brewing. The, the ideological claims on each side have not particularly changed, although I would say the group that I call Global Israel was only hinted at, gestured at in the 1980s, whereas in the 1990s, after the Oslo process, you began to have startup nation, you began to have a genuinely global economic life in the country uh, that was techno technology based in a way that was portended perhaps in the 1980s, but really flowered in the 1990s and 2000s. So the population that sees itself as part of a much more cosmopolitan global community um, has grown tremendously and has enriched itself tremendously. And by the way, pays for the world of greater Israel, uh, of you know the people in Jerusalem, the settlements, uh, in the, the, the world of the ultra-Orthodox, the national Orthodox, who are focused in Jerusalem and the settlements, um, are, are benefiting tremendously by the economic support and also the military support, because the ultra-Orthodox don't do the army. So, so they're, they're both defended by and funded by the very people whose liberties and conception of democracy they're trying to crush in your piece in in this excellent piece uh israel's war within it seems to me and correct me please if i'm wrong that you you point a finger in some ways at some israeli politicians i guess representatives in a sense of global israel people like golda Meir for for, for not really recognizing this split. I wonder what about the Americans? Do they have a responsibility here, given that Israel's war within is in some ways mirrored by America's war within? You have divisions, similar divisions within America, especially in 2024. Is America responsible in some ways, American foreign policy for all this? Especially since, as you just noted earlier, they're, they're paying the bill. Without America, Israel probably wouldn't exist. Well, uh, that was true, certainly in the 1980s. I think Israel um, has uh, economic resources it didn't have then. But you're right. I mean, right now, America certainly 
both diplomatically, less less so economically, but militarily uh, and diplomatically, is essential for Israel. But your your question's wonderful in a way when you ask. Um, where were the antibodies? Like, you know, like Golda Meir was not really part of that religious Zionist world. So why didn't she oppose it? Uh, the American Jewish community was not particularly sympathetic to this messianic religious Zionist world of greater Israel. But where were the antibodies? Like, why haven't they uh, been able to restrain these uh, groups, these settlers, um, and the theocratic aspects of the state apparatus that they've been um, pushing for, for all of these three generations? And um, the answer is unfortunately complex, but it really does have to do with the American Jewish understanding of Israel as a Jewish state. Um, when, when the uh, pioneering world of Zionism thought about a Jewish state, what they really meant was a Hebrew Republic. They meant a, they, they meant a world that's attended by the Hebrew language that was creating this innovative Jewish culture that, that, that would be a Hebrew culture. Um, and most American Jews don't, don't uh, buy into it. They don't tie, tie to it. They don't know the Hebrew language. They don't feel it. That for them, Israel is a cause. It's not a home. They're always replaying in their minds the reason why Israel was founded in 1948, as if that's that that question that historical question has to be litigated in every generation again and again there was the holocaust there was the refuge there was this place for jews to go that's the way american jews tend to think of it um at least american jews of my generation i'm in my 70s now so american jews of my generation tend to think of israel that way um they don't they don't um it's, it's, it's like people who think about America by reading the American Constitution, but never heard of James Taylor, you know, have never heard of uh, Walt Whitman. They, they, they have this sense of the country as a refuge against anti-Semitism. If you think that, if that's your version of Israel, then you're going to naturally uh, think of the religious aspects of that that country. You know, you think of it sort of in American terms as a kind of synagogue with an army. You know, and and as a result, when you when you see that there are certain aspects of the state apparatus that privilege Jewish religious life, like no civil marriage in order to get married you have to have you have to be married by uh the rabbinic uh, courts um uh be, you know they have their that the religious zionists have their own separate school system 
and and you go down the list of the various and kashrut in the army you know jewish uh, dietary laws in the army and so you go down the list of things which have created an environment in which the religious zionists have been thriving american jews don't really see that as a violation they see it as a kind of natural condition for a jewish state but if you're an israeli liberal these things are not natural conditions and what defines a jewish state is the hebrew republican aspects of the country you you and so you have this this uh tension now I know you raise the American government, not just the American Jewish community, but I think in many ways, the way the American government has been responding since Truman to a Jewish state is, reflect, is, is reflecting really how the American Jewish community looked at it. So we are speaking with, uh, sorry, go on. Yet. There's a tension we haven't reconciled yet. Sorry, go ahead. We're speaking with Bernard Avishai, one of the world's leading scholars, thinkers on Israel, domestic politics, identity, Zionism. I want to thank uh, our friends at Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Excellent new publication covering a lot of these sorts of issues. Going to run a short feature on Liberties, and then we'll be back with Bernard Avishai to talk more about Israel, as he put it. Uh, Americans get it wrong. It's not just a synagogue with an army. It's not a cause, it's a home. So we'll be back in a couple of seconds talking more with Bernard. Don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Bernard Avishai, the author of a, of a wonderfully uh, provocative new piece, the cover story in Harper's this month, Israel's War Within. Uh, the, the subtitle on the cover, at least, Bernard, is The Battle for a Country's Soul. We can blame editors for sometimes rather silly titles, but do countries have souls? Should we be thinking about that? Is another mistake we're making about Israel or America or anywhere else, the notion that a country should have a soul? Oh, I think when when they uh, chose the word soul, I think that we're really referring to its constitutional systems. I mean, you know, there are ways in which um, the institutional life of a country has to be uh, recognized, the kind of replicable, replicable behaviors that the laws and, and institutions of a country encourage. Um, uh, the soul of Israel has to be seen in the context of the uh, various um, legal and, as I say, institutional apparatus that that provide a context for people to grow and be educated and to develop. Um, and 
I think there really is that kind of fight today. It's over whether or not um, Israel will have a constitutional system with the educative value of, say, the American Constitution, where the where the rights and limitations of the state are stipulated in a way that creates space for individual integrity, individual dignity, um, or whether you're going to have theocratic institutions that idealize some kind of some version of what a, a perfect Jew should be and try to force everybody to <laughs> conform to it. Um, that's, that's, that's what the fight is going to continue to be about uh, long after I'm no, no longer here. Yeah, it's interesting talking about it. It seems as if some of the issues were issues that the American founding fathers were very familiar with. Um, this struggle between uh, what you call global Israel and a, a religious uh, Israel uh, were the same issues that Republicans addressed in the revolution against um, Britain and the foundations of republicanism in America. Uh, is, is that fair to, 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 to many states that were born out of conflict? Do they have this struggle between an enlightened republicanism, shall we say, and um, a nationalism rooted in insularity? Well, I think that the... Uh the comparison with the founding fathers in America is apt insofar as when the Constitution was written, um, it was on the one hand a statement of very high principle and on the other hand a tremendous compromise. Um, of course, slavery is, is you know, a, a kind of original sin of American constitutional life. And it took uh, 75 years until the Civil War for that, um, that uh, tremendous flaw in the American Constitution to be um, uh, overturned. Um, that didn't end the culture war in America. It opened the country to uh, uh, 100 years of Jim Crow and the, and the problems that that were created in in the wake of the civil war but america uh, america sort of faced its constitutional crisis in mm. in the civil war 75 years after the creation of israel israel is facing the flaw in its constitutional system mm. which is that it created all kinds of privileges for people with J positive blood um, and, and did not think through why it's so important to, uh, that is to say at its founding, these, the founding fathers of Israel did not think through the importance of creating a constitutional system mm. that was going to protect the individual rights of Israelis and define Jewish in effect by the Hebrew language. Um, and as a result, a country with a 20% Arab minority 
continues to privilege Jews as individuals in ways that no democracy should ever have accepted. I mean, the most obvious one is probably the law of return. Which you're a benefit, you note in the in the piece, you're a, a beneficiary right, of. I was a beneficiary of back in 1972, um, and which I thought at the time was perfectly fine because I was thinking like a Canadian or American Jew, uh, you know, the law of return was promulgated in 1950. It was, it gave immediate citizenship to anybody with a single Jewish grandparent. Why? Can you think of a reason why? Because, because the Nuremberg laws had hmm. designated as Jewish anyone with a single Jewish grandparent. So basically the law of return said in 1950, anybody whom Hitler would have hunted can come and find refuge here. Now that made perfect sense in 1950 when there were Jewish refugees and DP camps in Europe and, and there was a period of what was called sort of the ingathering of the exiles. But it makes no sense at all for a country 75 years later where somebody from Teaneck, New Jersey gets on a plane, lands in Israel, has no Hebrew whatsoever, and can become an immediate citizen of the country. Whereas if you are an Arab and you want to bring in um, a, a, a spouse from Jordan or something like that, there are all kinds of roadblocks in your way to create a citizen out of your spouse. Now, um, you know, I'm not saying that Israel shouldn't have a kind of privileged immigration for people who are refugees from anti-Semitism. I think that can be built into the, to any immigration law. But anybody who comes to Israel, like in any other democratic country, should have to go through a process of naturalization. You, you come to the country, if you qualify for landed immigrant status or resident alien status, you're here for a number of years, you learn the language, then you pass some kind of test, then you get citizenship five years later, seven years later. That, that makes sense. If you don't do that, if you don't think of immigration that way, your immigration laws that way, you're actually um, not even doing justice to the national life you've created here because you're not, you don't believe in the naturalization to the culture of this country. And you're just assuming, you're sort of defaulting to the idea that, well, it's a Jewish state. If you're, a Jew, if you're religiously Jewish somewhere or you're, you're, you know, therefore, ipso facto, you're a victim of anti-Semitism and you ought to be able to come and just become a citizen here. It's, it's such an anachronism. But Bernard, doesn't this law of return, um, doesn't it depend on, on who's quote unquote returning? I'm not sure I'm convinced what, what that word means. You, uh, you note in your piece, you grew up the, you grew up, up the street from Leonard Cohen. You're clearly a, a liberal Canadian Jew who chose to, 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 to relocate or return to Israel. If everyone was like you, you wouldn't have this war within it would be a secular globalized state you 
you, you would have spawned kids who would have been startup entrepreneurs or have traveled around the world. Isn't the, I don't know if it's the problem, but the paradox is that the, the, the law of return has enabled many Jews around the world to arrive thinking that this place, to quote you, is a cause and not a home. Well, um, let's put it this way. The law of return in its day um, created uh, a path to immediate citizenship for a lot of people, mainly from North Africa, great many from the former Soviet Union, for whom the Zionist revolution was merely hypothetical. Um, they, they did not think of coming to a country that was going to create a tremendously innovative Hebrew culture and were going to um, create a modernity, a liberal modernity in the Hebrew language um, they thought, on the contrary, that they were coming to a refuge in the case of North Africans from Arab civilization coming as a refuge. They, they were no less refugees of war than mm -hmm. the Palestinians who were refugees during the Nakba. And they came really with the same kinds of moral, domestic moral understanding that Arabs, that the Arab uh, population had uh, tremendously um, restrictive sexually, tremendously uh, paternalistic women who were utterly illiterate. They 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 came to Israel under the law of return, without having been Zionists. Zionists in the revolutionary sense of the word. That was also true of a great many people who came from the former Soviet Union. They were not Zionists in the emancipatory sense of the word and came to Israel because they thought, well, it was an easy path to the West. They, they wanted to be part of the Western world or they had suffered anti-Semitism in the former Soviet Union and thought, yeah, let's, you know, Israel is the place where we can have our Zhirinovsky, you know, we can have our Jewish Putin, you know. Um, there, there was um, not a deep well of appreciation for democratic politics coming from people from the former Soviet Union, though many of them actually had very good engineering educations and contributed mightily to startup nation in the 1990s, software engineers and so forth. So the law of return, ironically, allowed people to come to Israel who certainly added to the, the uh, diversity and, uh, um, you know, the, the, the effervescence of the culture, but they were not necessarily people who came with the same revolutionary ideas about Judaism that I came with, for Although, example. Although, ironically enough, if you wanted to fiddle around with your, as you suggested earlier, with the law of return, you probably wouldn't have been allowed in, whereas they would. 
No, I would I'm I would likely have been allowed in, but I wouldn't have been made a citizen immediately. Right. You would have struggled because you'd have to probably prove that there was a great deal of anti-Semitism in your Canadian suburb, which there probably wasn't. Or well, you know, one could tweak the immigration law in such a way as to say that if someone can show that they have um, a connection to the historic Jewish people, that, that they ought to get certain points. Um, you know, C Canada gives you points if you have some yeah, it'd be interesting connection to, see to the that. British Commonwealth right. or if you have an education or something. I mean, kids these days in America, kids would probably claim to have gone to NYU, they would have experienced anti-Semitism. Let's try and end, Bernard, with some optimism. You talk about a tragedy, maybe sometimes tragedies end well. You've written extensively back uh, last month. You, 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 you wrote about how there, there may be hope for peace. How can, how can we get beyond this tragedy? I mean, it's all very well talking about peace. You end with some, something about what happens after Netanyahu. You're not particularly optimistic. You think things might get better, worse before they get better. But how can we get beyond this, this tragedy, this, this war within? Look, um, <laughs> this is a multi-generational struggle. Um, I think realistically, to the extent that one can use a word like realistically, when one is talking about such, such a volatile and dynamic and tragic situation, realistically, the war within will only be resolved when the war without is uh, in some ways mitigated. Um, when, when Israel finds itself at peace for a generation or two and its economy becomes um, even more deeply intertwined with the global system because for all the talk about anti-globalization you know globalization is not going away and israel is going to be like singapore within that global system um as that happens i think the pressure on the ultra-orthodox young to get an education that will allow them to qualify for employment in that global system, that pressure will grow and grow. The settlement project will become less and less prestigious and will become, in fact, uh, kind of anathema to what's happening in the coastal cities. Uh, little by little, you know, the the 25 or 30 percent of the country right now who would identify with this religious zionist greater israel world um, will become 20 percent will become 10 percent that's my hope correspondingly on the palestinian side i would like to see the 30 35 percent who uh, identify with hamas become 20 percent you know 15 percent and so on and um it's, it's, I think, realistic to hope that in a condition of peace, 
in a condition of reciprocity, and I would even say condition of confederation, because no two-state solution would ever be practical, ever be plausible outside um, of something like a confederation between Israel and Palestine, because you're dealing with such a small territory. I mean, you're dealing with a territory all the Palestine and Israel together north of Beersheba is about the size of greater Los Angeles. I mean, that's that's what we're really talking about. So, you know, as you have that confederal structure working, it it does feel to me that we can win. That is to say, the cosmopolitan parts of Israel will win. It's also quite possible that we will have Bosnia, a fight to the finish, where the war that is hot in Gaza today and hot on the Lebanese border continues to um, foment um, violence on the West Bank, maybe violence in Israeli Arab cities as in May of uh, 21. And you could have here a kind of Bosnian war with ethnic cleansing on both sides and so on. I, I, I think I, I could make a case for either. So if you ask, how does this war, this culture war end, uh, the scenarios are um, rather uh, attractive on the one hand and very grim on the other. Um, but I don't, what I don't think is possible is that the status quo can simply go on. You know, people say, who, people who say uh, this can't go on, this can't go on, this can't, eventually it can't. And I feel like we're now at that inflection point. The Gaza war is a kind of inflection point because the only way to end the Gaza war is through some kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, larger regional deal, which the American government is uh, pushing. Um, and if Israel goes along with that, um, they might be able to eventually get the hostages back, begin to entertain a Palestinian authority that can move in and replace Hamas in Gaza. I mean, all of this is still very hypothetical, but it there's a logic to it. The question is, will the Israeli government go for it? And here again, the culture war kind of springs up because the people in the Israeli government who are opposed to this American um, vision, this Biden administration vision. The people who are opposed to it are, of course, the same people who were attacking the judiciary last year. They don't want the status quo to change. They benefit from it. In this case, they benefit from their settlement project. They want the occupation to continue and they, they will do everything possible to thwart a Palestinian state because they don't want to lose the prospect of greater Israel. But, uh, finally, Bernard, um, there's clearly no love lost between Biden and Netanyahu. 
could one argue that Donald Trump is much better situated to get to your better place than, than Biden? He's likely to at least be the Republican nominee in the next election. And as you suggested, the Americans are pivotal in all this. So look, it, <laughs> I, I don't know who, who Trump is tomorrow. I don't know who he was yesterday, who he'll be this afternoon. Um, you know, if, if we were still looking at the Donald Trump of 2016, I would say, no, he would not be a better way of getting to this because he was basically, um, you know, Netanyahu's buddy and basically willing to deliver to Netanyahu and to the most uh, reactionary parts of the American Jewish community, their dream palace. And, you know, the, his notion of what a Palestinian state looked like, um, which he said he was for and offered in his so-called deal of the century, you know, was really a kind of joke. Um, I don't know. I mean, to you, it, it may be true that because Netanyahu has been not loyal <laughs> to Donald Trump, that um, Netan that Trump could turn around and tell the, the Israeli government, you know, you have to do X, Y, Z, you have to do what the Saudis say, you know, it's possible. It's possible. I, I don't trust a, tr a new Trump administration to be tremendously uh, farsighted or thoughtful about anything for more, you know, from, from day to day. I think they're very transactional. Uh, Trump is very transactional. I do think that the Biden administration has laid out um, a vision for the Middle East that entails acceptance by the Gulf states and by Saudi Arabia in a way that would work both for Israel and for the Sunni moderate states, Egypt, Jordan, and so on. Trump might, if he gets elected, um, simply pretend that that's his plan and follow through on it. Um, I don't really think there's an alternative. The only alternative would be just to back Netanyahu and back the settlement project and back a kind of forever war with Hamas and Hezbollah. And I'm not sure that Trump would have the appetite for that. It, it, it's an interesting question, but I'd, I'd, I'd like that to be a bridge we don't have to cross, frankly. I'd like for us not to be facing another Trump administration with a, a merely transactional view of foreign policy.